Now, if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> we're almost done. We've got about four hours and we'll be out of here. But uh, no, it's not true. I saw some, what? You know? um, turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to the Brit Hadashah, the New Covenant Scriptures, looking at the book written by one of Yeshua's disciples, Yochanan, means the graciousness of God. God is gracious. We know his name more often by the name John. But in Hebrew, Yochanan, the Lord is gracious. What a great name. God is gracious. Can't do any better than that. But in chapter 20, we have this interesting account that I'd just like to bring to your attention and then share some things regarding the resurrection of our Messiah. By the way, how many of you uh, are here for the first time? How many? Just, just Wow, well, thank you guys for coming. Really appreciate you being here. And how many of you were at Passover Friday night? Feels like we were there yesterday, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, it's like we just came from there and here we are round two, you know. But in chapter 20, beginning at verse 24, now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the other disciples when Yeshua appeared to them. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Yeshua came, stood among them, and said, Shalom Aleichem, peace be unto you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my, stop, my side, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Yeshua told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, it's very easy to be critical of a person like Thomas, isn't it? I mean, here he was for three and a half years walking with the master, learning from him personally, seeing him perform the miracles that he had performed. And yet now at the end of his public ministry, when Yeshua had uh, been put on the execution device of the Romans and had his hands and his feet nailed to two uh, timbers, a cross, and then afterwards placed into the tomb. And now Thomas, who has not seen the Lord resurrected, is saying that he will not believe. Many have characterized our own age as an age of skepticism. But the reality is every age is an age of skepticism. Every age there have been skeptics and no less than in the first century. And here we're introduced to one who was one of Yeshua's own inner core disciples. You would think, how can that possibly be? And yet Thomas is the biggest skeptic of them all. Imagine that. You know, consider for a moment just that Yeshua is the Messiah. He is who he said he was. And here he's saying, unless I put my hands, my fingers in his hands and in his side, I will not believe. I mean, that is extreme, is it not? I don't think any of us would ever say such a thing as crass as that. We might say, unless he speaks to me, unless he shows up, unless I see him, 
unless, but how many of us have really said, unless I put my hands, my finger into his nailed, scarred hands or into his side? And yet one of his own disciples is saying just that. Now the story, the events of the resurrection are startling. I know that for the cursory reader, it appears that it's just another religious thought, another mythological thing to be reflected upon, another story that has been told among the pantheon of religious stories that we hear from time to time and from time immemorial. But the story of the resurrection of Messiah is a very different story than any other stories like that that you may know about or may have read. The only reason it appears like other stories is because we have not read it carefully enough. And we don't know the background, the history, the culture of the time and place in which the events transpired and took place. We just assume we know much about it, but we really know very little. When we think of the events as they are recorded, they're recorded in a very unique way. Consider this. Throughout the account of the life of Messiah, we always read, or at least oftentimes read, Yeshua did this, Jesus did this, so as to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets when they said such and such. You read that over and over. Now, as I was preparing for this morning, I reread and reread the stories, the events, the recordings of the resurrection account. And one thing stuck out, many things stand out, but one thing stuck out to me this time that I had not thought about before. And that is, in all of the accounts of the resurrection, you never read that. You never read, and Yeshua came out of the tomb just as the prophet said he would on the third day. You don't read anything like what was recorded earlier regarding the events in the life of Messiah. When you look at Luke chapter 24, I think it is, when Yeshua is walking on the road to the village of Emmaus with two of his disciples, they do not recognize him. He then begins to teach them of all that the prophets and the law and the writings would say were to take place with regard to the Messiah, how he would die and would rise again. We do read that. In fact, twice we read that Yeshua did unfold to the disciples what the scriptures had said, the law, the prophets, and the writings, the Tanakh, the entire Hebrew scriptures, what they had to say about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. But in the accounts, as the writers write them, they don't give us any of those clues. I wish they did. They never say this happened in accordance with what had transpired. Why is that is the big question. Why don't they say anything like that? I think one of the reasons why they don't say anything like that is because the notion of the resurrection as it occurs was completely novel to the followers of Messiah. It was outside their understanding completely. They had never imagined what had transpired would transpire. Even though Yeshua time and time again told them that he would die, he would be buried, and on the third day he would rise again, that never takes hold of their hearts and minds until after the event takes place. And in the case of Thomas, it never takes hold until Yeshua appears right before them. 
So the accounts of the, right, of the resurrection of Messiah are very unique because they never say anything like that. And in the entire books that record the life of Messiah, we don't find anything in it that tells us this. The closest we get is Yeshua's own words in which he says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale or the fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. That's the only passage we are told to look at or the only event to look at that has any bearing on the resurrection of Messiah. And the connection is on the time frame in which he would spend in the tomb and the fact of his death. So if we look at the book of Jonah, and we find that Jonah the prophet was unwilling to do the will of God and go to the city of Nineveh and proclaim to them that judgment was about to fall, that Nineveh, that Jonah runs from God's will and runs as far away as he can get from Nineveh. Nineveh is north of the land of Israel. Jonah was one of those prophets from the area that we would know in the first century as the area of Galilee. And from there, he runs to Joppa, which is like the area around Tel Aviv today. From there, we're told that he goes down to the port. He goes down to a ship that's tied up at one of the piers. When the ship sets sail, it's setting sail for Tarshish. In the ancient world, first century, the most furthest distance one could get west of the land of Israel. He's trying to head away from where God had called him. And in the first, first chapter, not only does he go down to Joppa, he goes down to the boat. The boat sets sail. A storm comes on the Mediterranean Sea. It says he goes down into the bottom of the boat. It says he falls down to sleep. When it is told and he tells the uh, sailors that he's the reason why this storm has come upon the sea, and he tells them, throw him into the sea. Now the text tells us he goes down into the sea. He goes down into the waters. He goes down to where the mountains and where the roots of the earth are found. He goes down where he's tangled up in all of the seaweed. And he goes down into the belly of the fish. And it's there that he sits and reflects. And what is really going on that the scripture is telling us is that in the belly of the fish, Jonah dies. That's what's happening. He attempts to escape, and in escaping, he meets his doom. And in the belly of the fish, he dies. Read very carefully the second chapter of Jonah in its poetic form. He speaks about his demise. And it's there at the moment of his death, he's reflecting on God's call on his life. And God then causes the great fish to vomit him upon the seashore. And now Jonah has learned his lesson. And he follows God to Nineveh. And he declares and proclaims the message. And the city turns in faith to the living God. Jonah's experience was an experience of death for three days, three nights, or three, three periods of time, three day, days, and then was brought to life. Yeshua is saying, and it's the only connection we have, but Yeshua is saying that he too, like Jonah, would die. And in his death, three days later, he would be brought to life, 
and thus complete and fulfill the entirety of God's will and word for him, which was to raise from the dead and to proclaim life and then one day to return to establish his kingdom and reign upon the throne of David. That's the only connection we have. Further, the story of the resurrection, as I say in, this, in my title, must be true because of the way that it's crafted. Keep in mind, if you read all of the accounts, that the ones who see the risen Lord first are the women who are associated with Messiah. In the first century, this would be unheard of. Not that women would see him, but the fact that they would be the witnesses of his resurrection. In the first century, women's testimonies were not acceptable. According to Jewish practice in Jerusalem, the testimony of women was not included. So if one was making up a story about the resurrection of their master, why would they choose to have women be the first ones and the eyewitnesses of the initial resurrection of Messiah? If you and I in the first century were making up the story so that others would believe it, we would talk about the kings in Israel. We would talk about the priests in Israel. We would talk about the Jewish leaders in Israel who saw the risen Messiah. But that is not what the writers write. They tell us over and over again, it was women. Not only do the writers tell us they were women that saw him first, whose testimony would not be accepted, but we're also told that the disciples who heard their testimony didn't believe their testimony either. If we were making up a story, we first of all wouldn't have women as the eyewitnesses, and second of all, we wouldn't have ourselves as not believing it. We would have ourselves saying, and I saw it, and I know it is true, and this is what he has done for me. But the early writers, the gospel accounts, record that they don't believe the women either. That they are caught up in their own culture and their own understanding. And they, too, were skeptical of what the women had told them. Thomas was skeptical, but so were the other disciples when they first heard the message. And if I'm not mistaken, the women repeat the message some seven or eight times before the disciples begin to believe them. If we were making up this story, we certainly wouldn't make it up the way that they had made it up. The way we think about the resurrection the way most 20, 21st century people think of it is this way. They would concur, they would say that what had transpired was some kind of momentous event. They may accept that. But they would say, and I think most people would say, that the story is written because these disciples had followed Jesus, had followed Yeshua for three and a half years and were fully committed to him. They were ancient people who were susceptible to supernatural occurrences. Not like we today who are scientific individuals who are, know that such things do not happen. But in the first century, they were gullible people. They were people who were certainly ones that would easily believe a miracle much easier than human beings in the 21st century. 
And thus they began to believe something that really didn't happen, but what that they talked themselves into. For after all, they lived and served and followed this man for three and a half years. They had sold themselves out for him. And now he has died. They probably went through a major psychological depression. And maybe some of them thought they saw Jesus. Maybe they were just hallucinating and wished they had saw him so deeply that they imagined that they did see him. And then they began to conjure up stories about him. That's what most people, I think, that you and I know who laugh at such ideas would say in explanation of why they wrote what they wrote. But the problem with the explanation is that it doesn't help us to explain what happened. Because first of all, we now know that the writings of the events did not happen decades after the event took place. As if, as if these disciples needed time to reflect upon and to deal with their loss. And in dealing with their loss, they imagined things that didn't really occur. And they wrote them down many decades after the events took place. We know, first of all, the writing of the events did not take place many decades after the events. Because we have manuscripts that date from the middle of the first century from 50 and 60 A.D. or C.E., the common, common era. We even have a fragment of Mark's account that has been dated to 34 A.D. That's only one year, if he died in 33, only one year after the death of Messiah. We know that the writings of the life of Messiah occurred much closer to the events than even decades after would suggest. There are over 5,000 manuscripts of the Brit Hadashah, of the New Covenant Scriptures. The only reason there are so many manuscripts is because the writings were conducted early in relation to the events they took place. So first of all, we know that the story of the resurrection did not come about decades after. And indeed, Paul writes about the resurrection. In his book to the Corinthians, which is dated in the late 40s, he wrote in chapter 15 that Yeshua the Messiah had died, was buried, had risen again, and that he was seen by over 500 people at one time, and many of them were still alive. Now keep this in mind. Paul's writing was a letter to a local congregation in the city of Corinth. Letters to local congregations were public documents. They were not private documents. They were public documents that were read for anyone who would venture into the congregation to hear them read. So when Paul makes this statement, he's making a public declaration of what he knows to be true, some of whom who saw the Lord were still alive. What Paul is saying is you can check some of these people out and ask them. If we were imagining, if we were writing the story of Yeshua's resurrection, number one, we wouldn't write women as the early witnesses of his resurrection. We wouldn't write that his disciples didn't believe them. 
We wouldn't write that there are over 500 who are still alive that you can speak with telling you these events had transpired. In other words, the explanation that is oftentimes given by secular individuals today does not meet the criteria of what we would expect if a story was being made up. But there's a further problem I find. It's what C.S. Lewis referred to as chronological snobbery. The notion that those in the first century are more susceptible to believing nonsense than we in the 21st century are. I mean, it's mind-boggling to think that the ancients were just foolish, stupid individuals who were gullible enough to believe that a dead person would come to life. The fact of the matter is that they are no, were no more gullible in the first century than we are today. And their testimony was a testimony in which witnesses observed and that they were women. Again, why would one make up a story in this context, in this manner, if it, hap- if it didn't actually happen? You would make the story up in a way that others might believe it not giving reason for people to disbelieve it. There's a further problem in the story, and that is the New Testament, the Brit Hadashah, is written in Greek. So some would say, well, it's reflecting Greek ideas about life after death. But Greek ideas about life after death are nothing like what we read about in the life of Yeshua. For the, for the first, first point in that is simply that the Greeks believe that our bodies were evil, that matter was evil, and that when one died, it was actually a good thing because then their bodies were disposed of, and thus their inner spirit, which was good, was now released from the imprisonment of this fleshly body that was evil and bad. Sometimes we hear such things said in our churches and in our congregations, that death is a good thing because it's a release of our spirit from that which has bound us. That's very foreign to the biblical word, and it's very foreign to Jewish thought. The scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that we are created in the image of God out of the dust of the earth. And that when he creates human beings out of the dust of the earth, he says, it was very good. There's nothing evil about physical things. And therefore, death is not a release from something that binds us, but rather it's another stage in the fullness of redemption that we will experience. Because what the scriptures teach us is that in the resurrection, our bodies will be unique and they will be unlike and yet like our present bodies. And so Paul says, this corruptible will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. It will be a this body that is transformed, and it was a this body of Yeshua's that was transformed. So the Greek notion has no bearing on the resurrection of Messiah, because the Greek idea does not, uh, is not reflected in what we read in the New Testament accounts. If you were to say, but the Jewish people believed in resurrection, that is very true. Job writes, in my flesh, I I shall see God after his death. In the book of Daniel, which we studied together, Daniel chapter 12, 
there's a very clear and direct statement about the resurrection of the dead. But the resurrection of Yeshua is different than what the Jewish people taught about resurrection. What the Jewish people understood about resurrection was that at the end of time, there would be a general resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. That all would be resurrected at the end of time together. They had no idea about an individual being resurrected in the middle of history. There were exceptions in which individuals were resurrected in the middle of history, but they were the exceptions that proved the rule. They were not the rule. So, for example, the individual that was buried next to Elisha, when his bones touched that of the prophet, he sprung to life. But it was unexpected and unanticipated. When Jonah dies in the belly of the fish, he thought his life now had come to an end. But he was brought back to life, something he did not expect. But it was contrary to the norm. For the norm was that all the righteous would be raised at one time. But what's happening in the life of Yeshua is that he is uniquely being raised individually. And his resurrection is not a resurrection unto death as the other resurrections were, but a resurrection unto life, even as he ascends into heaven. The Jewish writers of the Brit Hadashah had no concept of these ideas. They could not have made it up because they do not exist anywhere in Jewish thought or first century thought anywhere. It is unique to what the New Testament writers are writing. Either the disciples were exceptionally brilliant to come up with this idea, or they wrote it because that's what they saw. The problem with the 21st century skeptic is they cannot explain how they wrote what they wrote. You don't have to believe it, but as a historian, you have to be able to explain it. And that's what the historian cannot do. Where did the disciples come up with these ideas that do not exist anywhere else? Were they that exceptionally bright and creative? Or were they individuals that experienced something they're trying to tell us they saw? And as witnesses to the event, they want all to believe in it. Can you imagine them coming up with a story that one of their own would say, unless I put my hands in his, in his side or put my fingers in his hands, would they really think of something like that? And then when he sees Yeshua to say those incredible words, my Lord and my God, such words would never be expected on the mouths of a Jewish man to affirm an individual who has died as God. That would be blasphemous. That would be unexpected. We said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. And then for a Jewish man to say of this one, with nail-scarred hands and his feet and hands inside, my Lord and my God, it doesn't fit what we understand about first century realities. And that's where the skeptic fails today. It is not only my burden to demonstrate that their record it is, is true. It is your burden to demonstrate that their record cannot be 
believed or understood or can be written at such a time as the first century. How do you account for what has been written? And how do we account for many thousands of Jewish people, as well as Gentiles, embracing it and believing it? How do we explain what is written to us when there's no basis for the concept to have been written? And one other thing that strikes me about all of this is that there were messianic movements in the first century. Josephus, in his his history, records seven such movements. He mentions one as early as 4 BC, at the time of the death of Herod the Great. And he mentions some as late as 80s and 90s AD, after the birth of Messiah, in conjunction with the fall of Jerusalem. He mentions seven And he tells us that there were many others. What's interesting about all of the messianic movements which existed before, during, and after Yeshua's life is that none of them claim that those whom they followed was still alive. None of those messianic movements exist to this day. None of them existed after the death of their follower. Many of them said they would be alive, but none of them ever stated he was alive and that they saw him. In other words, those that followed other messiahs upon the death of their messiah found another messiah, or they were executed along with their messiah. But there are no followers of these individuals that Josephus mentions, with the exception of one and that is those who followed Yeshua of Nazareth. Those are the only ones that that Josephus writes of that continued to follow their master, that spoke of his resurrection, that said that he was still alive and concluded that they had seen him with their own eyes. How can this writing be so exceptional and different and apart from anything else that was written, unless what was written is true. And what was written is written not only for them, but is written for us as well. Now, if you still find the accounts of the resurrection to be false, you ought to desire that it be true. Even if you can't grab it and you say, this is still crazy to me, But I can't explain any other way why these individuals recorded what they recorded. Remember, the burden of responsibility is still upon you to read what is here and to find out how it could be they could write something that they wrote unless it happened. And historians of greater caliber than ourselves have been frustrated by that very point. But even if you're still willing to gamble and say, I still will not believe like Thomas, you ought to want it to be true. You ought to desire it to be true. Because if the resurrection did take place, then it means that we matter to God. It means that God is really concerned with you and I and the world in which we live in. Someone has said, if the resurrection has not occurred, then Karl Marx was right in saying that social issues are not really of paramount concern for those who claim to believe 
in Yeshua. If the resurrection did not take place, then perhaps, as someone has said, Nietzsche was right to say believers in him are wimps, and therefore they want what is not true to be true. Someone has said, if Yeshua did not rise from the dead, then Sigmund Freud was right, and we're just psychologically distorted somehow, and believing what is a lie because we are in such psychological disarray. But if he did rise from the dead, then all of those ideas is nonsense. And the reason he rose is because God cares about the world in which you and I live. The world then must matter to God. And that means you must matter to him. If you don't believe it, you ought to want it to be true. Because then what does your life mean in the end result? It means, as the existentialists have said, absolutely nothing. And we go from birth to death, and there's nothing more. So why make your life more complicated than that? We might as well all become homeless and not be burdened by the responsibilities that we all feel. But if you feel those responsibilities, it's because you believe you matter somehow. And if you believe you matter somehow, you ought to desire to believe that you matter eternally and significantly. So you ought to want it to be true. And if you want it to be true, then all you need to do is to ask the master if it is true. That's what Thomas did. I will not believe unless. Well, If that was something Thomas could say, it's something you could say, if you want to. And if you do, I have no doubt at all that the Lord will show up to you like he showed up to Thomas. He may not stand in your presence and extend his hands to you to touch, but he will meet you where you are at. And it may be through the reading of his word. It may be through a crisis that will bring you to your knees. It may be through a friendship that you cannot possibly understand unless this person's love has been energized by a greater love than any human being can conjure up by himself. The point is God loves you and therefore he showed up for Thomas and he'll show up for you. But let me just remind you that when he shows up, you then have the responsibility to fall before him like Thomas and to say, my Lord and my God. And when you do, you will find the fullness of joy and life that you have never experienced before. And now the things in your life will begin to make sense more so than just going from one point to another, hoping to survive another time. But rather, there'll be meaning, purpose, and significance because we know whose we are and we know where we're going. And therefore, we know how we ought to live now. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness and your compassion. 
We are grateful that our Messiah did the unthinkable and unexpected in coming forth from the grave, a transformed individual into whose likeness we one day will also appear. So, Father, we thank you for this moment in our calendar when we can set apart our thoughts to reflect on the uniqueness of our Lord who has risen from the dead because of his love for us. The one who died that our sin might be covered and the one who lives that we might live for him and for one another. And so, Lord, we rejoice that you are the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and the one who is coming again to restore all things as they were meant to be. In the meantime, Father, may you take hold of our hearts and may we live for you and bring glory and honor to your name. For we pray in the name of Yeshua. Amen.